Father, we thank you for this moment in time where we get to come together collectively as a community and a body of believers, praying together, singing together, encouraging one another, edifying one another, God, and hearing your preached words. And all we ask is that you would make our hearts and our minds fertile so that your word would fall on soft and fertile ground, that it would take root. We pray against any distractions, God, as anything that would scorch your seed, that would uh, choke out the seed, God, and distract us from applying your word. Yes. Take deep root, God. May it produce a harvest right before your kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Psalm 42. Uh, there's often times in our lives where we have gone through circumstances, uh, some turmoil, some heartaches, and it causes us to become depressed, uh, to be despondent, um, downtrodden. Um, our countenance gets low. Causes anxiety of some sort. We become emotional. And sometimes if we're not careful, we allow those emotions to dictate how we think and to dictate our words and our actions, if we're not careful. The psalmist this afternoon is dealing with that same sort of tension. He's going through, we know this is David based on what he's written in previous uh, chapters or in post chapters in Psalm, Psalm 63 is identical. He's going through because he's being persecuted either by Saul, he's on the run, or is by Absalom. But yet he's going through. And so he's up against this emotion, feeling down. He feels like the Lord has left him. He knows his enemies are taunting him. His enemies are uh, talking bad about him. And if David is not careful, his emotions will get the best of him. And for us this afternoon, we need to be thinking about this and listening carefully to what the Spirit's going to say because we can allow our emotions to talk to us. And I think we need to allow our faith to talk to our emotions instead. Mm -hmm. Talk to your emotions through faith and don't allow your emotions to talk to you. Because what happens, we end up doing dumb stuff. Right, we say dumb stuff, and we think stupid stuff, and we have to really counter that quickly as possible and say, remind ourselves, what does the Word of God say? What are His promises? If we remind ourselves of that, we'll be in good shape. And so, like I said earlier, this psalmist we believe is David. David presents himself here as as if he's divided into two parts. <clears throat> he, by faith, rests on the promises of God and then rises to fleshly feelings. At the same time, rebukes himself for his weakness for those feelings. The psalmist, the psalmist shows gracious desires that are strong and fervent, shows hopes and fears, joys and sorrows which are struggling, 
And we see a wrestling of a sort between the flesh and the spirit or the emotion and faith. See, what we'll notice in these verses is that faith begins with holy desires towards God and communion with him in one and two. And then emotion complains of the darkness and cloudiness of the present condition and is aggravated by the remembrance of past enjoyments. He can't get there. He wants it, but he's aggravated by it because he can't get there. And then faith comes back and silences the complaint with the assurance of a good concern at last. But then emotion walks back up and renews his complaints of the present darkness and gloomy state. And then again, faith holds up the heart despite its heaviness with hope that the day will dawn. In verse 8. And then again, emotion repeats his laments in 9 and 10 and moans out the same argument it previously made about his prior grievances. And then faith finally gets the last word. In verse 11, faith silences the complaints of emotion and logic. And though it is the same in verse 8, excuse me, in verse 5, faith now prevails and has won the day. And so what we'll notice is that without the grace of God, <clears throat> we will never be able to overcome the discouraging and the weary and the evil thoughts that constantly rise within us. And so what must, what must we do? What must we do? We must thirst for God because in him is where, he will, is where we will find our hope. And that's the title of the sermon. A thirst for God <clears throat> leads to hope in God. A thirst for God leads to hope in God. So I'm not going to read this again, but in verses 1 and 2. When the psalmist was expelled. Let's see if I can get away from this light. All right, here we go. I'm sorry, bro. No, you're trying to record, brother. Sorry. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so when the psalmist was expelled from his outward opportunities of waiting on God, that's what David is dealing with, he's away from God, he feels like he's distant from God, he cannot get back to that state, he wants it so bad but he can't, he's expelled. And so when he was banished to the land of Jordan, far from the course of God's house, he expressed his passionate, passionate desires towards God. See, sometimes God teaches us to know the worth of his mercies by the want of them. See, we're, we're more apt to dislike the manna when we have plenty of it, but then that same manna will be very precious to us if we ever come to, the, to know the scarcity of it. And when it ain't around, we want it. Yeah? Y'all know, know how it is. You got a lot of bread in your pocket, at least maybe when you were young, you had $100. Maybe back in the day it was a a lot of money when you was broke. You were just spending it. But when you ain't got no money, it's, a, it's another story. No doubt. And so, 
David is mourning because he was the pride. He was the pride in great measure of the inward comfort he used to have in God, but he went on panting. And so if God, by his grace, <clears throat> has produced in us sincere and earnest desires toward him, then we can take comfort from this when we feel as if we're missing out on the heavenly delights that we once had in God. Why? Because lamenting after God is as much evidence that we love him as rejoicing in God is. Lamenting. Because we love to rejoice, we can rejoice very well. We can praise very well. Even if we don't feel like it, even if it's taken from But sometimes we don't even do enough lamenting. I remember my professor used to tell us that back then. He's like, we love to praise, but we do not love to lament. He says, lamenting can often be a sign that you are just as much his as praise is. And so what is it to lament? Think about that. Lamenting after God. See, before the psalmist records his doubts, his fears, his griefs, which has shaken him, he premises this, that he looked upon the living God as his foremost good. And he therefore sets his heart upon God and was resolved to cast anchor and ride out the storm with God. He cast his anchor upon him. Two, two, three points right here. What is the object of David's desire? And what is he thirsting after? One, he pants after God. He thirsts for God. Not the ordinances themselves. Those are good things and he wants that too. But not the ordinances themselves, but the God of the ordinances. See, a gracious soul can take little satisfaction in God's course if it does not meet with God himself. Why does it matter if we come here if God isn't even here? What does it matter if we gather if God is not in the midst of that gathering? If God's not in the midst, well, then it is all in vain. But the psalm is the same. It doesn't matter that I can do your ordinances, Father, take the Lord's Supper, do baptism. If you are not even in the midst or not even blessing that, you must be present in order for it to have value. That's what the psalmist wants. Secondly, he has here an eye to God as not just God, but the living God. He wasn't just a mere idol, a stone, statue, none of that. He was not on the serum pole. He said he is the living God, active, which has life in himself and is the fountain of life and has all happiness to those and gives all happiness to those that are his, the living God. Not only in opposition of dead idols, the works of men's hands, but to all the dying comforts of this world which perish in. See, living souls can never take up their rest anywhere short of a living God. <laughs> if we put our hearts and, 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 and weight upon something uh, that ain't even living, we will die with that. We have no outlook upon what is the thereafter. 
because our rest is in something that's dead. Third, he longs to come and appear before God, to make himself known to God as being conscious in himself of his own sincerity to attend to him as a servant appears to a master. He wants to pay respect to God and receive God's commands to give an account to God as one from whom our judgment proceeds. To appear before God is as much the desire of the upright as it is the dread of a hypocrite. See, the psalmist knew he would not come into God's courts without incurring a specific expense. See, for... He understands the law, and he understands that none should appear before God empty. See? But yet he longs to come and will not mind the charges. He says, he must, I must offer something to God, a sacrifice based on the Levitical covenant. I must come, not empty. But you know what? In this case, even though I'm physically empty-handed, I'm going to come to God anyways and incur that expense. Because he is a gracious and merciful God. And so David, what we see here, we see a pressing in of David. He's pressing in. He is in a posture of persistent panting. He does not care what, his, what he has or what he does not have. He says, I have one thing in mind, and that is to get back to God. And so no matter what it takes, I'm going to get there. And I don't even care what he does to me. Do whatever you will to me, Lord. I'll incur the expense. But as long as I'm in your presence. This is his posture. See, his soul desperately thirsts and pants for God. His soul desires communion with God and is becoming impatient because it seems so impossible to find that needed communion. I don't know if you've ever been there before. I have. I've felt it. You kind of feel distant. You're not sure when you'll regain that traction sometimes. You can be doing all that you at least feel like you need to be doing, from praying to studying to your devotion, and yet you still feel distant. You don't feel like you got that connection. But yet, David, he said, I'm going to still press in. Anything short of that communion with the living God supplies absolutely no satisfaction for the weary soul. What we see, too, is verse 3 says, My tears have been my food day and night. And they talk about where is your God. See, even David, this, this royal prophet, excuse me, this weeping prophet, when he wanted the comforts of God's house, he cried. His tears were associated with his food. Even they were his food day and night, the text says. He fed, he feasted upon his own tears when there was such cause for them. And it was a satisfaction to him that he found his heart so much affected with a grievance of this type of nature. See, he did not think it enough to shed a tear or two at parting from the sanctuary to weep a farewell prayer when he took his leave. But as long as he continued under a forced absence, he didn't willingly go, but it was a forced absence from this place of delight, 
He never looked up, but wept day and night. Note this. Those that are deprived of the benefit of public worship constantly miss it and therefore should constantly mourn for the presence of it until we're restored again. Ask yourself, I'm not talking about when you go on vacation, and even on vacation, you know, everybody needs a, a break from work and to leave and get some reprieve and all of that stuff. You may even miss when you're on vacation. However, not that type of example. When you cannot be here because of life, whatever circumstances throw it your way, you want to, but you can't, have you ever missed it? It's like that. Like any time that we cannot be around the saints, be in this public worship, it ought to do something to us. It ought to at least increase that desire. We often do say, at least as it relates to relationships, uh, distance makes the heart grow fonder. Our hearts should be really greatly fonder anytime we cannot be with our beloved brothers and sisters. Two things aggravated David's grief. First, his enemies were teasing him. It said they continually say to me, where is thy God? One, because he was absent from the ark, the token of God's presence. David loved being near that ark, if you ever read the Old Testament. He wanted to be in that ark. Secondly, because God did not immediately appear for his deliverance. He says, I am away from the ark, distant from that. Secondly, God ain't even around to deliver me. They concluded because God was not delivering David at the time that their God, the God of Israel, had abandoned his own people. That's what his naysayers were saying. And so the heathens concluded that because Israel was being judged by God, which they were at the time, that they had also lost their God. See, unbelievers are greatly mistaken. They think that when we are the unbelievers, or excuse me, believers, uh, have been maybe robbed of our Bibles, robbed of our churches, maybe robbed of our songs, robbed of our ministers, we can't be in the solemn assembly, that they have robbed us of our God, that he has forsaken us. Yeah? No, we know that ain't the case. We know where our God is. He's in the heavens. He is sovereign. We know where to find him. He has never left us nor forsaken us. If we ever lose these, if we ever lose this, if we cannot temporarily gather together, God is always going to be there. And we are always going to be his. God is everywhere. And wherever we are, there is always an open lane heavenward. Always. We know where he is. And then secondly, because the enemies teased him. Secondly, the remembrance of his former liberties and enjoyments aggravated him. You see that in verse 4. He says, these things I remember. I pour out my soul. How I will go with the throng or the crowd of people and lead them in procession of the house of God. 
David enjoyed worship. He enjoyed leading his people in worship. David remembered the days of old, and then his soul was poured out in him. He was melting away. He was broken in heart. He poured out his soul in sorrow. And then he pours out his soul before God in prayer. See, but what was, uh, what was the issue that pained him so much that his spirit began to melt? It was not the remembrance of the pleasures of the court or the entertainments of leading that. Some people just enjoy singing. Some people just enjoy being on front. They were like, no, no, no. I don't, I don't get enjoyment from like just being on stage front and center. No, that ain't it. I ain't trying to be up here for showtime at the Apollo. That ain't what I'm trying to do. No, that's not what afflicted him. It was the remembrance of the free access he formerly had in God's house. He said, no, I have free access. Freedom, liberty of worship. Liberty to bow down, to sing with my people. It's the access. He went to the house of God, though in his time it was a, a, a tent. And then at the time it was being, he was being persecuted by Saul. And the ark was in a private house. See, 2 Samuel chapter 6, uh, verse 3 reads this. He says, they placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio and the sons of Abinadab were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments. Made of fir wood. They had the lyre, they had the harp, they had the tambourines, the consonants, and the cymbals. See, in its obscurity and its inconvenience, uh, the place didn't lessen the esteem of the sacred symbol of God's divine presence. See, David was a prince. David was a man of honor. He was a man of business, and yet very diligent in attending God's house. He was diligent in joining in public ordinances, even in the days of Saul when he was being persecuted. See, he went with the multitude and thought that it was nothing, okay? It was not belittling to his dignity to be at the head of a crowd and attended upon God in his presence. That was the one thing David loved. He missed his pleasure, and he is lamenting about it. See, the more the better in the service of God, it is more like heaven. They was pretty much saying, man, I know that this is a practice for what's coming, what we do here. This is nothing but a, a little taste of what we're going to incur once we get there. And I want to get as much of it now. Even though I'm logging for the future, I still want to do a little bit of it now. Mm. See, he went with the voice of joy, praise, not only with joy and praise and heart, but with the outward expressions of it, proclaiming his joy and speaking forth the high praises of his God. Note this. When we wait upon God in public ordinances, we have reason to do it both with cheerfulness 
and also with thankfulness. See, to take to ourselves the comfort and give to God the glory of our liberty of access to him. That's a thankfulness right there. We have access to you, God. We have freedom to you because of the blood of Christ. That is very much praiseworthy and ought to be all that we, if nothing else, we give thanks for that because of the free access that we have. What they were dealing with right now was just a precursor to what we have currently. And he went, he, he went to keep holy days as well. Not to keep them in vain, out of mere recreation. Some people just go to church out of religiosity, or they just go on the holidays. You know how that goes. And it means nothing. They was like, no, I'm not going out of just mere recreation uh, and just to do a religious exercise. I'm going because I truly love you and I adore you. I want to praise you and I want to praise you with your people. You desire this from me. Mm -mm -mm. And then the psalmist then begins to commune with his own heart for his own relief. He says, come my soul, I'm paraphrasing, come my soul I have something to say to your heaviness anytime your emotions get the best of you, you're feeling heavy you got to say that come on over here, my soul let me, let me holler at you for a little bit let me speak to your heaviness verse 5 it says, why are you cast down oh my soul all the turmoil, let me, let me talk to you about that. Proverbs 12, 25 says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. We gotta speak a good word to our souls, a gladdened word to our souls. See, he inquires of a spirit. Why are you perturbed? Why are you confused? Why are you in disorder? Let's figure out the cause of this uneasiness, soul. Why am I cast down? Is there a, a cause, is there a real cause for our souls being cast down? Have not others more cause? <laughs> Have we not at the same time cause to be encouraged as well? Or it may be taken as a rebuke. That's how I read it. David's actually rebuking his soul. He's rebuking himself. Those that commune much with their own hearts will often have to reprove or rebuke themselves, as David did here. He says, why do I therefore discredit, this is what he's saying, why do I therefore discredit God by my gloomy miseries? Why do I discourage others and do so much injury to myself? Hmm. Can I give a good account of this turmoil? Probably not. And so what does he do? David then tells his soul the cure. This is how you cure your soul, soul. He says, Hope in God. 
for I shall yet praise him. See, he has a believing confidence in God, in his sovereign remedy against prevailing hopeless and anxiety. And therefore, when we admonish ourselves to hope in God, to hope on God, instead of drowning in despair, our heads are held above water. Because we're holding on to the power and the promises of God. You still might be in the water for a while. I'm not saying he's going to get you out. I'm saying you will not drown. Right? You're not done. It'll be a little life raft with you. Okay? But you're holding on to the promises of God, which keeps you afloat, which keeps all of us afloat. That's the only reason why we are here right now. Because we stay in afloat. I don't know what's going on in your lives or whatever, but we are still holding on, right? And so he says, hope in God. That's the cure. But two things from this. Why is this the cure? He says, so that he will get glory from us. This is one reason why we hope, so that he will get glory from us. He says, I shall yet praise him. I shall experience such a change in my state that I shall not want substance for praise and such a change in my spirit that I shall not want a heart for praise. What does that mean? I'm not looking for the praise. I am looking to give praise to him. I'm not looking for the substance of it. No. Change the state within it. We are not the subject. We are not the object of praise once we get out of it. Oftentimes, we can get out of situations, and then we'll say, look at me. It ain't got nothing to do with you. Yeah. It has nothing to do with us. All about him. Well, let me tell you about the one who got me out. It's not about what I did. It's about what he did in me and through me. Let me tell you about the Savior. It's sort of like evangelism, man. Yeah. He's the substance. It is the greatest honor and happiness of a Christian and the greatest desire and hope of every Christian to be unto God the highest of praises. That's why I love Shia's song, Shia's song. Not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. It's scripture. Right, Psalm 15, not to us. Oh, Lord, not to us, but to your name give the glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. See, what is the crown of heaven's bliss but this? That there we shall be forever praising God. And what is our support under our present calamities but this? That we shall yet praise God. That the world should not prevent nor stop our endless hallelujahs. Never. They can't stop. That's one thing I can quote with Pete Diddy. Can't stop, won't stop. <laughs> That's the only thing I can quote. Uh, and not only so that we can get, he can get glory from us, but we shall have comfort in him. We shall also have comfort in him. We shall praise him for the help of his countenance. That's what the text says. His appearance for his favor. See, the support we have by it and the satisfaction we have in it. See, those that know how to value the light of God's countenance will find in him a suitable 
and appropriate and sufficient help. Suitable, appropriate, and sufficient help in the worst of times. It's the only thing that can provide that for us. Nothing else can. Even medications. Even counseling. All the therapeutic stuff we can find is very, 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 very temporary, temporal. It's not going to last. But God's countenance is a rock solid sufficient help for us. David's believing expectation of this is what kept him from sinking. More than that, it kept him from drooping, from keeping his countenance low. He was able to hold his chest out and stand up high and tall, shoulders back, in the midst of it. See, David's heart was, yes, a comforting cure for Saul's depression. But David's hope was an effectual cure for his own. The heart or the hope, which one would you choose? Well, we're going to choose hope. Because the heart obviously didn't do it for Saul. But the hope did it for David. And it does it for us. Yep, have a good one, brother. Complaints and comforts right here, as before, because it's coming up again, take their turn, like day and night in the course of nature. He has his hope, but now again the emotions come back up with the complaints and the comforts. Again, my soul is cast down within me. What do we see? David complains of the miseries of a spirit, but comforts himself with the thoughts of God here in verse 6. First we see in his troubles. His soul was dejected. He goes to God and tells him, oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. So, this is a really great support to us when upon every single, uh, every account, when we are distressed, that we have liberty and access to God. And also, not just access, but he's like, you can talk to me. We can speak to God. We can give a speech before him and may open to him the causes of our anxieties and our issues, our dejections. David does this. David had communed within his own heart about his own bitterness and had not yet found relief, and therefore he then turns to God and opens before him his troubles. He says, well, there God, I can't do it in myself. I ain't finding no hope in myself. There's no cure in myself. Let me go to God. When we cannot get relief for our burdened spirits by pleading with ourselves, we should try what we can. We, we, should, we should try what we can to do by praying to God and leaving our case with Him. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about this. It says you can go to God boldly and unashamedly before the throne of grace. Ask for anything and receive grace and mercy in time of need. He has it. It's not empty. It's forever flowing. It's what David's doing right here. He's giving us an example of this. Hmm. He goes to God. And so he complains about his troubles. 
Then secondly, David is going within his, he's going in his devotions. In verse 6, in his devotions. He says, his soul was elevated and finding the ailment very painful, he had a sovereign remedy. So he has troubles and then from his troubles, he goes now to his devotions for a sovereign remedy. He says, my soul is dropped, therefore I am going to sink. I will remember you I will meditate upon you and call upon you and try what and try something that I can get my spirit about. He says the way to forget your troubles, the way to forget your miseries, the way to forget the sense of all of our angst for David, he says, or at least gives the example, is to remember the God of our mercies. He goes from his troubles to his devotions because he understands that if I remembered God and his mercies and his promises, well, then this will then turn my mind from my troubles to focus back on God. So you're not even thinking about your troubles anymore, at least not in that moment. But he's saying whenever you are feeling this way, think about God and his promises. Whenever we are feeling drooped down and in despair, remind yourself of God and his promises. Forget not all of his benefits. David was now driven to the extreme borders of the land of Canaan to the shelter, to shelter himself from the rage of his persecutors. Sometimes to the country of Jordan, it says in the text. And when discovered there, then he has to go to the land of the Hermonites or to the hill called Mazar. That's why he's saying those areas. He is running away. He is being persecuted. He has troubles. He goes to, the, he goes into, he goes to his devotions. But in the midst of that, he is still on the run. Two observations here. I think what we see as David is on the run, so he's in trouble. He's still able to reflect on his devotions. I think wherever he went, he took his religion, he took his faith with him. That's one observation. Wherever he is, he still has his faith. It's not wherever he is, he loses it. Wherever he is, he still has it. He holds on tight to it. So whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, we still have our faith. In all these places, David, he remembered God and lifted his heart to God and kept his secret communion with God. See, this is the comfort of the banished, the wanderers, the travelers, uh, those strangers in a strange land. Wherever they are, they know where God is. Two, wherever he was... <clears throat> He kept his affection for the course of God's house from the land of Jordan or from the top of the hills. He used to look and long for and long look towards the place of the sanctuary and wish that he was there. It wasn't just for God, but it was also the presence and the people of God. Distance and time could not make him forget what his heart was so set upon. And that it lay near 
which was the house of God. Man. Beloved, I, I wish I longed for the house of God the way that David does. Or I did. And I can be judging today honest. I don't. But man, when I read the Psalms, I see how much. And maybe because we have way too many distractions around us. We have the creature comforts. When we, we don't say it, we might not even think it, but we definitely operate in it. Too many distractions, too many accesses to everything around us. And so we ain't thinking about God. We ain't thinking about the house of God. It's a Sunday to Sunday thing or a Wednesday and Sunday thing, whenever you have Bible studies, whenever you have small groups. And the rest of the week is filled up with everything else. Yeah. <clears throat> then he says, and we got this in verse 7, he deep calls the deep the roar of the waterfalls. See, David saw his troubles coming from God's wrath. He saw his troubles coming from God's wrath. He didn't say for the world, but from God's wrath. He knew that they were under judgment. And that discouraged him when he says deep calls it to deep. That is, one affliction stacks upon another affliction. As if it, the affliction was calling to the other affliction and then ringing the bell and the alarm saying, let's go get him. That's the picture right there. See, this points to the trepidation and the, un, and the uneasiness of David's mind under the fear of God's anger. See, one frightful thought summoned another frightful thought and made way for anxiety as is usual for low-spirited people. See, David was so overpowered and overwhelmed and overflowed of grief, he was like a ship in a sea uh, in a great storm tossed by the roaring waves. This is what David was describing, going to and fro. But the thing that we have to remind ourselves is whatever waves and billows and afflictions that go over us at any time, we must call them God's waves and God's billows. That's the key. See, they're here to begin with. And if we call them, well, these are God's ways, these are God's billows, we may humble ourselves under his mighty hand and encourage ourselves to hope that though we may be threatened, we shall not be ruined. For the waves and billows are under a divine check. They're under divine ordinance. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of these many waters, he says. See, let God's people not think it strange when we are weighed down with many and various trials. You know what James says, count on all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet various trials of all kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith will produce steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that we may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And so these trials that we go through, y'all, are not for nothing. They are not for nothing. And so don't count it strange because we are called to suffer. One way or the other. Not only that, but in verse 8, he expects deliverance. David expected his deliverance to come from God's favor. He says, By day the Lord commands a steadfast love, and night his song is with me, a prayer to God of my life. Things are bad, but they won't always be. See, after the storm, there will be a calm, and, and the hope of this supported David when deep called to deep. We see this in two ways. David's looking for the favor of God, 
in a one way, what did David do? David promised himself, he promised himself, he promised, excuse me, he promised something from God. We see what he promised himself from God. One thing he promised from God, promised himself from God was, the Lord will command his loving kindness. The Lord will command his loving kindness. See, he eyes the favor of God as the fountain of all the good he looked for. See, he knows that, that God will eventually gather those uh, whom he has in a little wrath, whom he has hid his face from. He knows this. Why? Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54, 7 through 8 says, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. David knows that God's favor will flow again. And we know this from Psalm 30. His anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. He says, we've been endured for a night, but joy comes in the morning. We quote that, at least used to quote that all the time. That's what it is. And so we see what he promised himself from God, which is that the Lord will command his loving kindness. And then secondly, what he promised for himself to God. See, if God commanded his loving kindness for him, then God will meet it. He will welcome David's best affections. He will welcome David's devotions toward him. He will rejoice in God. See, in the night his song shall be with me. The mercies we receive in the day, we ought to return thanks for at night. He says this. When others are sleeping, we should be praising God. Psalm 119. At midnight will I rise to give thanks. We should always thank God when we go to sleep, before we go to bed. For keeping us throughout this day. Every single day. Keeping us from danger, seen and unseen. Sustaining us. Keep, I mean, all of that. So he will rejoice in God. That's part of what he promised for himself to God. Also, he will seek God in a constant dependence upon him. He says, my prayer shall be to the God of my life. Our believing expectation of mercy, folks, must not supersede, but hasten our prayers for it. Our expectations must, expectations by themselves, must never supersede our prayers. Expectation without prayer is not faith. Expectation and a hope ought to lead to prayer in faith. You could hope and expect to get out of anything, but if you are not praying, and petitioning God, well then what does that expectation mean? Where is it coming from? Where is that hope coming from? If it's coming from the Lord Almighty, your deliverer, that will be the faith, and it will show up. And so we must pray, we must act. Prayer is a very for sure sign of faith. If you expect, let's pray. And so, it ought to hasten our prayers. 
God is the God of our life in whom we live and move, the author and giver of all of our comforts, and therefore to whom we should pray and petition. So to expect and not pray to God and to not pray to God is not faith. And the way to forget our miseries, again, is to remember the God of our mercies. And then again, he complains. I thought we was out of it. But he complains of the insolence of his enemies, and yet comforts himself in God as his friend. We're almost done. His complaint is that his enemies oppressed and criticized him. And this made David uh, crazy. Had a big impression upon him. I said to God, my rock, in verse 9, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? Deadly wounds to my bones. Adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is my God? See, one, they oppressed him so much to a degree that he went mourning day to day from place to place. Secondly, they uh, uh, rebuked him so much that it was cutting like a sword to his bones. He had mentioned it before about the accusation, what was bothering him, and then he repeats it again. Uh, they say daily unto me, where is thy God? It's, it's, it's a scolding, which was a very grievous thing to him, uh, both because it reflected dishonor toward God and then was intended to discourage his hope in God. You're dishonoring my God, but then you're also discouraging me from God, and I hate it. However, David's comfort is that in verse 9, he says that God is my rock. He again reminds us of that God is my rock. That means he's steady. He's rooted. He says a rock to build upon, a rock to shelter in. The rock of ages in who is everlasting strength would be his rock. His strength in the inner man, both doing and suffering. So to him, David, he had access with confidence to this rock. He therefore repeats what he had said already before in verse 5, and then he concludes with it in verse 11. Why art thou cast down on my soul? His griefs and fears were so much and troublesome, but yet they were not silenced, though. They were again and again answered. But here, his faith, lastly, his faith came off as a conqueror. His faith came off as the ultimate conqueror and forced the enemies to quit. See, he gains this victory in verse 11 by repeating what he had before said and rebuking himself for his dejections and encouraging himself to trust in the name of the Lord, to stay himself upon God. See, it may be of great use to us to, to think that our good thoughts of God over and over again. And if we do not gain our point the first time, well then perhaps we can gain it the second time by thinking it over again. However, where the heart goes along with the words, it is not a vain repetition. We keep thinking these good thoughts of God, these promises of God. We must keep repeating those thoughts, good thoughts of God to ourselves, to our spirits. Because then the actions will eventually follow. It will become a habit. 
And so why should we do this as Christians? Why should we keep pressing in? Because blessed is the man or the woman who feels himself to be a stranger only in the world, but not in the house of God. See, God never leaves those who lament for him without comfort. God, nor those does he seek him without guidance. Those of you who are of the household of faith, who have first spoken earnestly with God, can speak comfortably and confidently to your own soul. Does that even make sense? You got a relationship with him. You can speak to your soul. The opposite of that is this. But if there is one or a few, who knows who's in here, who's not saved, who has not placed their faith in Christ, there, unfortunately, are no promises for your soul to cling to. There is no remedy for that pain. There is no praise for you to sing for the comfort of your weary soul. If you're only hoping in the broken promises and fleeting remedies of this world. But allow me to give you a better option. It's the gospel of Jesus. See, the gospel is the good news that we who were once enemies of God have now been reconciled by the blood of Christ and adopted into the family of God. It is the good news that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is the good news because of our salvation and eternal life and our home are not on this earth. It is not in our jobs, our statuses, or our talents, but in heaven and are guaranteed through Christ Jesus. Who said in Matthew 11, come to me all who, have, who are labor and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He says, I will give you rest. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The good news of Jesus is the appointed way through which God in his mercy sends to us, us needy ones, the water of life, the light of truth, the power of grace in Jesus Christ. See, suffering is painful. Scorn is painful. But most of all, is guilt and being under the wrath of God. See, while each day is its prayer and each night is its song, the sources of divine help and comfort are open to the soul who rests in Christ. See, in a time of sorrow, he who begins with prayer and continues to exhort his soul to be patient and trust in God can confidently hope that he and she will end with a hymn of praise. See, we can enjoy communion with God even when exiled. Even when we're exiled from the house of God, we can enjoy communion with him. We may fall into trouble, but we are not disheartened. We may come out of one tribulation and go into another, but we are never destroyed. See, the true longing of the soul is for communion with God himself. But whoever desires that fellowship must wait in confidence for God. And what we have not, we must hope for. What is not now, we must expect. Relying upon God's goodness, faithfulness, omnipotence, and the truth of his promises, which are yes 
and amen in Christ Jesus. And so the remembrance of God, beloved, the remembrance of God is the best medicine for our sorrows. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word in this Psalm 42, God. Uh, may it rest on us, God. Uh, may we devote ourselves to this God this day. That we will remember that our rest is in you. Our promises are yes and amen in you, God. You will never leave us nor forsake us. Even in our current trials and tribulations, God, you keep our heads afloat. And you will get the glory out of all that you're doing in us. And ultimately, you are doing it for our good and for your good pleasure. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.